The following is an audio recording of The Path from Metaphor to Narrative, Gampopa's Jewel Ornament of Liberation, by Dr. Richard Payne of the Institute of Buddhist Studies. Recorded on April 18, 2014, at the Institute of Buddhist Studies Numata Symposium, Narrative in Buddhist Texts, Practice, and Transmission. A response by Rev. Dijako Kinst of the Institute of Buddhist Studies follows. Thank you, Rev. Masamoto. Um, it's a pleasure to be here this morning, and I want to thank you for taking the time uh, to come out and join us. One of the intellectual issues that has interested me for almost half a century has been the question of how is Buddhism to be distinguished from other religions? The mirror image question emerged uh, for me much later than that, uh, which is what provides the unity for Buddhism? In general, it seems to me that neither doctrines nor practices can be identified as either clearly distinguishing Buddhism from other religions or providing an overall unifying thread for what Buddhism is. The diversity of doctrines and practices um, are just too wide-ranging to identify any of those as unique uh, or uh, definitional. One could pursue the now well-worn path of rejecting single characteristic definitions, that is, monothetic ones, in favor of multiple characteristic definitions, polythetic ones, or more colloquially, family resemblances, together with an invocation of the name of Wittgenstein. While such an approach is valid, one usually then encounters what might be called a lack of follow-through. That is, we never learn what the various important characteristics are, why they are important, what parts of the collection they unify, and so on. A claim of a multiple characteristic definition usually results in a dead end. In other words, one that brings a halt to inquiry, frequently with everyone either feeling sagacious or anxious, depending upon their familiarity with Wittgenstein. In research on an essay uh, now several years old, I had encountered the concept of the biblical threefold narrative, that is, the narrative of creation, fall, and redemption. This narrative was originally a cosmological one, um, and then was reinterpreted in Christianity as first an historical one, and then later was individualized as the narrative of the soul's mystical progress. In the 19th century, it was naturalized in two forms, one historical, with Hegel and Marx, for example, and the other uh, a secularized form of the individual's return to wholeness, uh, familiar to us now from the works of the Romantics, German idealism, and the Transcendentalists. The latter, the secularized individual version, was very influential in the formation of psychotherapy and with the merger of Buddhism and psychotherapy from tentative beginnings in the early 20th century to today's hegemonic presumption of their identity, the romantic version of the threefold narrative in the form of unity, alienation, and return to wholeness has been presumed to be the narrative structure of Buddhism as well. That essay had attempted to call the presumption that Buddhism shared the same underlying narrative structure into question and made a preliminary gesture toward what a comparable Buddhist narrative would be. I would like to thank the organizers of this symposium for having given me the opportunity to return to this theme. So, ah, it works, excellent. So we'll start by asking the question of who is Gampopa? Um, as you can see, he was a 
about 11th to 12th century uh, Tibetan teacher. Uh, he combined a twofold lineage. He's considered a pivotal figure in the history of Tibetan Buddhist thought and practice because he brought together the monastic Kadampa lineage with the ecstatic and antinomian lineage of the Mahasiddhas. The ecstatic and uh, antinomian tradition of the Mahasiddhas, um, they are a group of 70 legendary figures in early medieval India, uh, sometimes conventionally numbered to include 84 different figures. And they operated outside the monastic environment, being either laity or giving up their monastic status. Symbolically, at least, they are similar to other renunciates and marginal figures. Uh, many are identified with the figure of the wandering poet, uh, their poetry being collected by the later tradition. Um, perhaps the figure of this type best known in the West is Milarepa. He's not considered part of the classic Mahasiddhas, but uh, certainly the work that's been done on him, popularizing his collection of poetry, uh, makes him a, a familiar figure of this type. The, the practice of producing songs of enlightenment continues uh, into the recent past in Tibet, uh, and I believe continues today uh, in exile as well. Some of the most historically identifiable of the Mahasiddhas constitute the lineage uh, from Tilopa to Naropa to Marpa to Milarepa to Gampopa. So the lineage of Mahasiddhas that are uh, we have perhaps the best historical uh, information about are those that lead up to the figure of Gompopa. The, um, let me, I will need to come back, but let me show you a picture of Gompopa. And in the four corners of the Tonka, uh, you can see four figures. Uh, these are the figures, I believe, of Tulopa, Naropa, Marpa, and Milarepa. Uh, at least the top right-hand figure, uh, as you're looking at it, is Milarepa, the famous cotton-clad yogi uh, of Tibet. Back there. The other lineage that um, Gompopa uh, integrated then was a monastic tradition deriving from Atisha. Uh, in the invocation that opens his jewel ornament of liberation, Gompopa not only mentions Milarepa, but also Atisha, who dates from about 985 to 1054. Atisha had studied quite widely, uh, including apparently in Sumatra, and became one of the most famous teachers of the era. He was invited to Tibet to assist with, in the revival of Buddhism there, and worked on the transmission and translation of Perfection of Wisdom and Madhyamaka texts. One of his disciples established the first Kadampa monastery, and the Kadampa are precursors to the Gelug sect, that which is uh, known today perhaps most commonly uh, in association with the Dalai Lama. The form of teachings, the Mahamudra teachings, that um, Gampopa initiated are referred to as Sutra Mahamudra. So Mahamudra is a tradition of meditative training that is commonly considered to be tantric in character. Uh, and indeed, the figures of the Mahasiddhas themselves uh, are identified with the tantric tradition in India. Gampopa, however, produced a form of Mahamudra teaching that did not require tantric initiation and vows, and is therefore called Sutra Mahamudra. Uh, and this is not uncontested as to whether or not this is an okay thing for Gampopa to have done.
Mahamudra is one of the traditions that is most explicit in organizing its teachings according to the threefold system that we'll be looking at here, that of ground, path, and goal. Okay. So the Mahamudra system is a teaching providing direct contact with the inherently awakened mind uh, without tantric initiations. So here again is a picture of Gampopa, apparently suffering from um, the shakes of some sort or other. Uh, hopefully he will get over it in a moment. Let us move on then. Uh, we've lost the signal. Okay. Um, and it comes back. Excellent. So what then is the jewel ornament? The Jewel Ornament of Liberation provides a summary overview of Mahayana teachings, organized into a description of the path beginning from the foundational character of mind that provides a basis for change through a progressive sequence of aspects of training up to the condition and activity of full awakening. The stages of the path of Lamrim literature per se. The Jewel Ornament is counted among a genre of texts known as stages of the path, uh, Lamrim, uh, which includes Atisha's own lamp for, uh, lamp for the Path, as well as Tsongkhapa's massive Great Stages of the Path, and Jigme Lingpa's Treasury of Precious Qualities. The genre is closely related to the Stages of the Doctrine literature, in that both are informed by a scholastic motivation to bring order to the mass of teachings, by a didactic motivation to provide instruction to those who are seeking awakening, and a polemic intent to locate teachings in a hierarchy in terms of greater efficacy. Um, like most genre categories, the two categories of stages of the path and stages of the doctrine are not monolithic. Uh, and it may be useful for us to extend our scope of concern to what might be called the path literature, a broader and more inclusive designation than either stages of the path or stages of the doctrine. Uh, for example, Buddha Gosa's path of purification may be included in this broader understanding of path literature. Okay, so what does it mean then to look at the jewel ornament as narrative? Um, okay, perhaps uh, most obviously first, we're not using the term narrative as synonymous with fiction. Um, Rather, I'm considering narrative in its minimal definition of a story told by a storyteller. The second characteristic, the presence of a storyteller, is used in literary studies of genre to distinguish narrative from other literary forms, such as drama and lyric, sometimes referred to as the narrator's voice. The centrality of it for determining the genre has been reduced as experimental forms of literature, such as Joyce and Wolfe, have come to be recognized for their importance. Despite questions about the centrality of a single narrator, what does remain is the fact that a narrative presents an ordered sequence of events. This is not to say that narrative ne is necessarily strictly linear. Some narratives start at the end and work backwards, or they start in the middle and work both backwards and forwards, or in some cases even follow different parallel tracks. Um, those of you who are familiar with the Alexandria Quartet uh, or have seen the movie Rashomon are familiar with the kind of parallel track going over the same chronological sequence from different perspectives. Whatever the format in which a narrative unfolds, 
There is, however, some overall sequential and indeed chronological ordering of events that forms the, fra the framework within which uh, they are related to one another. This orderliness in terms of how events are related to one another is what provides a sense of meaningful connection between the events. There is, in other words, a sense of causal connection, at least implicit in the events that make up the narrative. The meaning of something in the present is constituted but by what preceded it in the past. Um, and I noted here that sometimes uh, this leads to the um, post hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy. That is, uh, just because there is a uh, chronological sequence does not actually mean that there is a causal relation. Okay? Uh, but that is often implicit then in the narrative structure. So narrative creates uh, what has been called an imaginal space. Uh, and this is uh, closely related to what Dr. Hallisey was referring to in terms of people imagining themselves in the situation being described in the narrative. Perhaps one of the most striking aspects of human cognition is that we are able to think of things that don't exist, whether combinations such as the sphinx, unicorns, mermaids, or abstractions such as balance, harmony, or discord. Such imaginary entities are located in what we're calling here imaginal space. And imaginal space is, of course, itself a metaphoric location in the sense that it gives thought a three-dimensional structure, and it is the location of all concepts uh, as distinguished from percepts. This is perhaps clearest when we are considering explicitly fictional works. Um, I have personally never seen Moscow, never been there, but I have an imaginary Moscow in my imaginal space as a result of having read War and Peace in Gorky Park. No one has ever been to Mars, but anyone who has read Edgar Rice Burroughs or Ray Bradbury or seen Total Recall has an imaginary Mars in their own imaginal space. And it is this imaginal space that allows a person to think of themselves differently. One of the most personal, personally powerful aspects of imaginal space is that it allows a person the opportunity to imagine themselves as something other than who they are, which is necessary for change. This is what in logic is known as modality, um, and the modal logic or the logics are those that address themselves to issues of possibility and impossibility, contingency and necessity. This is the ability to pretend, to imagine and to act as if. And imaginal space is a necessary part of practice, for it gives meaning to experience by locating it as part of a progressive sequential development. By structuring imaginal space into the three narrative stages of ground, path, and goal, practice is given direction and experience is given meaning. So like other works in Buddhism, um, the jewel ornament uses three fundamental steps uh, in laying out the, uh, the overall path, and those are the ground, path, and goal. While the path literature is in part motivated by scholastic desire to bring order to the diversity of the teachings, the particular structure, uh, narrative structure of ground, path, and goal employed by the bar, jewel ornament can be abstracted as a framework for thinking about the diversity of the teachings. 
Um, and in this, the ground is a starting condition, in most cases that of a foolish, ignorant person. Um, the path is the interrelated actions to be undertaken and stages to be moved through, uh, whereas the goal then is the end or the uh, stage of awakening. Uh, those who are familiar with the 10 oxerting pictures uh, are familiar with a, uh, a version of the path. Uh, the first here is, uh, corresponds to the, uh, to the ground. That is, there's no awareness of the, uh, of the ox, but there is an awareness that the ox is absent. Uh, we then find the tracks have a first glimpse, catch the ox, taming the ox, riding the ox home. That then constitutes the, the path portion of the 10 ox herding pictures, leading to a transitional phase where the ox is forgotten, the self is alone, both the ox and the self are forgotten, returning to the source, and finally return to the marketplace. Those last mark different aspects of the goal, uh, and we'll see a similar kind of uh, treatment in uh, Gampopa's jewel ornament. So in the Mahamudra interpretation, the ground is the inherently awakened nature of cognition, which generally goes unnoticed. This is um, a nice phrasing that I lifted from another author, that it is generally just goes unnoticed that that is the case, the nature of cognition. The, excuse me, the path in this case includes preliminary practices as well as stilling the mind and insight uh, are widely familiar shamatha and vipassana uh, kinds of practices. The goal is characterized as awareness of the non-dual nature of existence and emptiness uh, or the innate purity of mind. So if we take that overall structure, uh, it gives us a way of looking at a text as complex as the Jewel Ornament of Liberation and seeing it in terms of a fundamental and commonly shared uh, understanding of what the uh, narrative um, structure shared among Buddhist texts more widely. Uh, I say this complex because the text has 21 chapters and just viewing those alone gives one only a small sense of how the work is, is in fact structured. Um, in looking at rituals, I've noted in the past that a purely linear presentation reveals little about the internal coherence of the work. Uh, and the modern translation and commentary of the jewel ornament by Konchuk adds a level of organization by grouping the chapters into six parts. However, as suggested by our discussion so far, we can use the ground, path, and goal as basic outline categories and apply those to the organization of the work so as to give us an even more general frame of orientation. The first three chapters describe the ground. These discuss Buddha nature uh, as the inherent and primary cause, birth in a human lifetime as the working basis, and meeting a spiritual master as a contributory cause. So these provide the ground upon which practice can be undertaken. The 
path then takes up much of the rest of the work, um, the next 16 chapters, in fact, uh, and the last two describe the goal in terms of what it means to be a Buddha and what a Buddha does. Discussion of the ground begins with what can be considered to be the most important step toward creating the imaginal space within which the jewel ornament operates. That is, the fundamental purity of mind, Tathagatagarbha. This fundamentally frames the practitioner as a certain kind of being in the world, a certain kind of being within the imaginal space, one who is always already awakened. This reconceptualization of oneself in such terms is, of course, not universally shared by all forms of Buddhist praxis. Many begin instead with a representation of human existence as fundamentally deluded, mistaken, ignorant of how things actually work. This difference in conceptions of the ground leads, I think this can be seen as what contributes to the familiar division of Buddhist teachings into sudden and gradual. Ignorance is overcome by the gradual acquisition of knowledge, understanding, insight, while the inherently pure nature of mind is realized suddenly. However, as distinct as these two ways of thinking about the ground are, many sudden teachings wind up looking um, a lot like gradual ones, in that a lot of work has to be done to make it possible to have that sudden insight. Thus, after the further grounding events of having attained a human birth and encountering a spiritual teacher, the jewel ornament devotes the vast majority of its texts to practices. The next three chapters provide instruction in the basic teachings of Buddhism, uh, familiar from almost any textbook dis description, impermanence, suffering, and karma. And in reading through the text, it seems to me that the seventh chapter is something of a, of a key pivot point in the development uh, of the text. Um, recognizing that a common response to awareness of impermanence and the futility of effort by, because of karma, the universality of suffering, this can lead to a desire simply for cessation. As a result, chapter seven introduces the practice of loving kindness and compassion as the antidote to attachment to the pleasure of peace. So the antidote to the desire simply for cessation, for peace, for ending the round of rebirth uh, is loving kindness and compassion. Having instilled a sense of compassion and redirected the practitioner's efforts away from cessation, that is having produced the thought of awakening, bodhicitta, only then does the text introduce the actions of taking refuge and precepts in, in chapter eight. That then leads to the cultivation of bodhicitta, um, to its two forms in, of training in aspiration and training in action, which in turn then sets the stage for the very familiar uh, six perfections. The next six chapters are devoted sequentially to each of those, to generosity, morality, patience, perseverance, meditative concentration, and wisdom. This is followed by what um, strikes me as perhaps the clearest evidence of the scholastic nature of Gompopa's work. Uh, he's not the first to have addressed this kind of um, conflict in the inherited tradition. 
but he addresses the five paths and the ten stages, um, each of which were created independently of one another and were only later uh, were attempts made to integrate the two into a single system. Uh, each constitutes a complete description in itself in that they both end with full awakening um, or Buddhahood, uh, or in the case of some treatments of the five paths uh, in the condition of being an arhat. So here he's dealing with two inherited descriptions of the path and attempting to make a coherent system uh, out of those. We then reach the goal, uh, the last two chapters, they said, Although this may be considered a sudden awakening uh, text in that it deals with the inherent purity of mind, the vast majority of it is devoted to all the work you have to do to have that sudden awakening. Uh, a description of what the nature of perfect Buddhahood is in forms chapter 20, uh, and then a description of the activities of a Buddha in chapter 21. Um, and this is what strikes me about sim the similarity to the 10 uh, ox herding pictures. The final, the 10th picture in the ox herding sequence is that of return to the marketplace. Uh, and here in chapter 21, we have Gampopa describing what a Buddha does in the world, what the actions of a Buddha are. Okay. So it seems to me that um, in answering and attempting to answer my own questions from much earlier, I thought this was going to take a lot more time. It's gone really quick. Thank you. This has been fun. Um, in attempting to answer my own earlier questions, uh, the distinction between Buddhist and Christian narrative structures. The biblical narrative of creation begins in a condition of, begins in a condition of perfection, uh, followed by its loss and finally its reclamation. In contrast, the Buddhist narrative begins in ignorance, either ignorance of how things actually work or ignorance of one's already awakened nature. The biblical narrative then proceeds to a theme of loss, loss of innocence, loss of unity, what Heidegger might call a sense of being thrown into the world, alienated, fragmented, and fragmentary. This is today in its um, kind of psychotherapeutic version, frequently presented as an unfortunate but necessary step towards true wholeness. In contrast, the second stage of the Buddhist narrative involves a training on the path, from basic insights into impermanence, suffering, and karma, through embracing compassion and loving kindness, leading to refuge and precepts, the arising of bodhicitta, and its active propagation through the six perfections. And finally, in the biblical narrative, one is either redeemed or in modern secularized version, redeems oneself, allowing for a return to the unity that marked creation, but at a higher stage that now incorporates the awareness created by the period of loss and alienation. The Buddhist narrative ends with awakening and the nature of how things actually work or to uh, awareness of one's own inherently awakened nature. Now, the threefold narrative of ground, path, and goal, um, we heard reference earlier to the, uh, the, to the metaphor of the, uh, of the white path. Uh, the path is a very, very, very widespread um, metaphor. It's found throughout not just Buddhist literature, but also in Taoist literature. Of course, Taoism takes its name from the notion of the path. 
Um, and it's also found in many uh, other religious and literary metaphoric forms as well. Uh, it is so basic that um, Lakoff considers it one of the foundational metaphors uh, for cognition. And what it seems to me has happened with the use in Buddhism, as we see here with um, Gampopa's explication of the path from ground through path to awakening, uh, is that the, the structure, the threefold structure, has become a narrative device that allows for the systematic organization of Buddhist thought and presentation of it. Um, at one point, I became rather uh, intoxicated by this idea and believed that everything in Buddhism could be explained in terms of the path. And I believe that as, a, as an explanatory device, it may be possible to use it in that fashion today. That we can look at different um, aspects of the Buddhist teachings and say, okay, in the overall structure of ground, path, and goal, we can locate that discussion, the debate as to whether uh, human beings are fundamentally deluded or inherently wakened, that's part of the discussion that's located at the ground. Right? That's a, the place within this overall framework. Uh, if we talk about the nature of what it means to be a Buddha, whether a Buddha can directly preach the Dharma, uh, whether the Dharmakaya can directly preach the Dharma, uh, as Kukai maintains, that's a discussion about the nature at the goal. Uh, all the discussions about different forms of practices fit in between. So it can be used, I believe, as a useful heuristic device for talking about the Buddhist teachings and organizing them in ways similar to what uh, Gampopa and other authors had done, but also now allowing us to take into account the much wider intellectual world uh, than they ever had to, to address. Um, that now we are in conversation with many different kinds of traditions, both religious and philosophic and psychological. Uh, and the ground path and goal structure as a narrative framework allows us a way to organize that conversation. Um, thank you very much and thank you again to the organizers and thank you for your attention this morning. Thank you very much, Dr. Payne. This time, I'd like to call upon Reverend Dr. Daijaku Kinst, who's a professor of Buddhism and Buddhist pastoral care at the IBS, to offer her response. Uh, first, I'd like to thank you for a uh, wonderful and thought-provoking paper. Um, your paper prompted me to consider the topic of narrative and Buddhist teachings and practices in a number of ways. Speaking from the point of view of a student and teacher of Buddhism and what Han DeWitt has called contemplative psychology, that is the personal <clears throat> psychological experience of following the path of a religious practice, I was struck again by the importance of narrative in the arena of Buddhist practice, the creation of our experience of self and the world, and the assumption we often bring to the study of religious systems. Your discussion of narrative as an orderly sequence of events laid out neatly 
what the psychologist Ernest Wolff and other psychoanalytic and intersubjective authors have described as the human tendency to organize experience in ways that make sense, which in turn supports the coherent subjective sense of continuity essential for human functioning. This tendency, in fact, this need, is sometimes ignored or denied in presentation of Buddhist teachings. For example, the injunction sometimes heard in Dharma halls and read in contemporary Dharma literature, um, the injunction to drop the story and be present. This as if the self is not shot through with narrative threads and meanings. Perhaps more to the point, there is an implication if this injunction is overemphasized that the human habit of narrative cannot be included in the realization of a subjectivity which is both inclusive of and not bound by narrative. In other words, that we need some, to be some other kind of animal to realize the Buddha way. Therefore, your discussion of narrative in the path addresses an important whole in many contemporary presentations of Buddhist teachings and practice. It also allows us to consider the power of our constructed sociocultural narrative for, as Daniel Dennett states, not only are we not the sole authors of our narratives, but, and I quote, for the most part, we don't spin our tales, they spin us. Your clear articulation of the foundation and unique character of a Buddhist narrative provides a basis for understanding what tales we spin, how they interact, and which we want to spin us. To be spun by the poetry and tales told by Gompopa and the lineage of the Mahasiddhis is, as you point out, a very different experience than being spun by biblical tales. As you noted, an overall sequential ordering of events forms a framework within which we relate to one another and provides a sense of meaningful connection between events. How we understand meaningful connection, as well as what we mean by meaning and how it is created, is crucial to how we experience our world and to the narrative that so deeply impacts our experience. I was particularly struck in this regard by your discussion of an encounter with alternative narratives in imaginal space and your outline of this according to the teachings of Gompopa. If we understand the self, our subjective experience, as a mutable meaning-making structure empty of inherent existence and co-constituted with the environment, both internal and external, the idea of an encounter in imaginal space provides a vivid way to discuss how that self, and therefore our subjective experience and our relationship to others, can be transformed when it comes into contact with an alternate structure of meaning, that is the teachings. As an aside, I think this provides a means to discuss not only the impact of text and teachings, but also the role of teacher. The practitioner encounters a different imaginal self in the text and in the person of the teacher, perhaps uh, an expression of a mountain way of life. This is an intimate process penetrating into the very bedrock of our existence. Such encounters allow for the emergence of a different narrative, 
a different imagining of self and world, a different experience of self and world, and also, since we are inextricably linked to our greater relational environment, potentially a social change as well. As you state, according to Gampopa's formulation, the ground or fundamental purity of the mind, Tathagatagarbha, frames the practitioner as a certain kind of being in the world, one who is always and already awakened. To encounter such a te teaching fully, when accompanied by the other two steps of path and goal, is to turn upside down most people's habitual structures of self and self-understanding. When we encounter such a method, we enter the imaginal space of the encounter along with the practitioner, imagining ways in which such an event could unfold. In my imagination, an encounter with imaginal space such as a radical, such as this, a radical alternate, to the usual narrative of human experience offers an opportunity to do at least two things. First, such an encounter can transform our subjective experience in such a way that realization of the teachings becomes more possible. And second, it can provide a container for a person to experience a loosening of reliance on any particular narrative account. We can think of this as analogous to what uh, D.W. Winnicott and others have called the between. Referring to the familiar division of Buddhist teachings into sudden teachings, the realization of inherently pure nature, and the gradual acquisition of knowledge, understanding, and insight, you state that sudden paths wind up looking like gradual ones in, the, in that a lot of the work has to be done to make it possible to have such insights. I think we can consider this process, this work, occurring in these imaginal encounters as supporting the transformation of the dependently arisen self, that is the way in which our habitual patterns of perception and meaning making structure experience, how these are shifted and changed in contact with the teachings, the path, and the subsequently expressed in daily life. Also, as you point out, there are significant differences between Buddhist narratives proceeding from ignorance path and awakening to one's inherent nature and the Christian biblical narrative as well as its secular offspring. Considering these differences, we can imagine how the transformation of self-experience resulting from a close encounter with each of them would differ as well. This has interesting implications for those with multiple religious belonging as well as the diversity of religious paths available to a person in many contemporary social systems. Several interesting questions came to mind as I read this paper, and it would be very interesting to follow up on them and see how they fit or not in the context of this presentation. The first has to do with Anne Klein's discussion of the necessary fragile sense of coherence provided by a reliance on narrative content as a basis for a stable self-experience. In other words, can, content can and does change and is often internally inconsistent. And a sense of self defined by the content of a particular narrative or narratives, as opposed to a sense of coherence based on awareness itself. 
A sense of self that is de dependent on narrative is inherently vulnerable, as life will ine inevitably challenge any static self-definition. I can imagine that relying on the narrative of a path as an organizing principle of subjective experience, as opposed to a static self-definition, would allow for a more robust basis for co coherent subjective experience, as it would allow for greater variability in specific content. In fact, it would include the inevitability of the change of that content. So here's a question. Do you see the narrative of the path as providing an alternate foundation on which to build one necessarily provisional sense of subjective cohesion? Also, Klein proposes a model of self-coherence based on the traditional Buddhist practice of mindfulness. She calls this visceral coherence. This alternate basis for an experience of subjective cohesion is independent of the content of awareness. Its basis is the experience of the continuity of awareness itself. How would this model of subjective continuity relate or not to the narrative structure of the path that you're describing? I would also like to pursue further how this discussion of, or understanding of, would uh, impact our understanding of the teachings such as those of Ehe Dogen, which seem to simultaneously propose and collapse a path model often in the same text. So he says, for example, in terms of collapsing a sense of sequence and duration over time, Dogen says in the fascicle Gyoji, the great way of the Buddhas and ancestors consists always in these supreme activities, never interrupted in their continuation, the desire for enlightenment, practice, enlightenment, and nirvana. These four activities never allow a single interval between them. In this writing and in others, Dogen emphasizes simultaneity of all aspects or phases of the path. How does this map onto a sequential model that you're proposing is essential to all Buddhist teachings? And finally, I wonder about the complexity of texts. We can see texts as containing multiple possible, possible narratives the way in which narratives are selected consciously or unconsciously to support the self-narrative that is dominant in any particular time, in any individual or in any cultural grouping. These uh, unconsciously or consciously held narratives have tremendous power to impact what we select in terms of a narrative. And one last thought I had as we were talking is uh, in, if I put on my hat as uh, director of the Buddhist chaplaincy program, I find this um, to be very interesting in thinking about uh, what is called theological reflection, the requirement for theological reflection in training of Buddhist chaplains. Uh, this has been an area of um, great difficulty for Buddhist chaplains because this so-called theological reflection is based on a Christian narrative. And when uh, Buddhist practitioners enter the field, their the fundamental narrative is at odds. And there's often um, a conflict and uh, difficulty in articulating what is the basis of a so-called theological reflection. So uh, thank you very much. I look forward to hearing your response. Would you like my responses now or? <laughs> Whatever. To, um, 
attempt to give some um, thought to the dryness in my mouth. Excuse me. Thank you very much for such a thoughtful uh, reading of uh, my necessarily uh, rather uh, sketchy outline of my thoughts in relationship to Gampopa uh, and the notion of the path uh, narrative. So you asked, do you see the narrative of the path as providing an alternate foundation on which to build one's necessarily provisional sense of subjective cohesion? Uh, yes, I do. Um, what comes to mind is that many people who start um, the practice of Buddhism find themselves thinking about themselves differently. That is, they adopt them, uh, the self-image of a person who is now on the path. Uh, and to that extent, it provides a different way of uh, not, not intentionally, but it automatically, in a sense, provides a different way of people thinking about wh who they are and what they're doing. Uh, saw a reference uh, recently to um, Springsteen's uh, Glory Days and watched it again like two or three times on YouTube. Um, and that is a portrayal of a particular way in which a person has constructed their who, their identity. Uh, they've constructed it in terms of something that happened in the past that cannot be recovered. And in a sense, it's a uh, recognition of what it means to be stuck in those glory days uh, and to not move on from those. Uh, I think that the path is useful in that sense as a metaphor for uh, building a sense of self-identity around a notion of change rather than of being um, stuck in remembering back when. Um, and I won't go into the verses of uh, <laughs> Glory Days. Uh, those of you who know it know what I'm, what I'm referring to. Um, so at the same time, um, the kind of um, what I think was called Zen sickness, uh, of being stuck at in mm -hmm. the, the role of practitioner, um, needs to also not become another form of identity. Mm -hmm. um, what Joey was talking about, about going to the seventh mountain and looking back, mm -hmm. uh, having progressed through the stages, then one sees a different uh, nature of what it means to, to be oneself. Uh, and the, in the sense, the, the path implies that kind of change and progress. And that alone, I think, is a valuable um, contribution to a different way of thinking about oneself. Rather than the static sense of being a, uh, we've all, this is Buddhism 1A, I'm sorry, but the, rather than the static notion of being a fixed self who has particular characteristics and particular qualities and particular relationships and identities, um, that one is a process of change. Um, and the, the path suggests to a person that that is the nature of what it means to be a human being. Mm -hmm. uh, 
us, it can provide uh, as an image, uh, as a metaphor for personal life, um, a different way of forming one's sense of self-identity. Um, the second question, uh, as I understand it, has to do with, uh, or is, the second question, I don't have to understand it, I just have to read it. How would this model of subjective continuity relate or not to the narrative structure of the path you have described? Um, I didn't get a chance to read back to the source uh, of this, but if, I, if I'm assuming correctly that there's some parallel between uh, what Anne is saying and what Harvey says in his uh, own work, um, that there is basically, yes, that a visceral coherence is not, what they're in part saying is that a visceral coherence is itself not a static one, mm -hmm. whereas a conceptual coherence is that static sense of self. Uh, and if, and that shift, um, I mean, I assume that they're not, that Anne is not saying, well, you identify with your body and that is different from identifying with your mind and that's okay because your body gets old too, um, as I've noticed. And the body is inherently in a process of change. So this visceral coherence is that of change. And if that's what she's referring to as distinct from a fixed uh, sense of identity, um, then yes, I think that it's very similar and that the, although I'm talking about something that's very abstract intellectual conceptual form, I think it does relate very mm -hmm. clearly to the embodied character because we've abstracted from the practices in order to put it together into a coherent order, uh, but all of those practices have an embodied aspect, an experiential aspect. Um, I mean, okay. um, the third, asking about Oh, the collapsing, uh, Dogan's, uh way of talking about um, sequence and duration over time, uh, beginning and end. Um, historically, I think that Dogen and many others in his era are deeply influenced by tantric conceptions uh, of the inherent awakened mind. Um, and what in the... Um, Sakya tradition is referred to as the, the, the path of fruition, that you take the inherently awakened of nature of mind, which is supposedly the goal, but that's also the fruit. So um, what uh, Groner referred to as the shortening of the path, um, instead of the path being a linear sequence, it's actually a circle, because the beginning and the end are the same. Um, and you know, Sokushin, Jobus are the uh, awakening in this very body. Um, those kinds of ideas as they permeated through Tendai, I think influenced deeply uh, all of Kamakura Buddhism, including Dogen. Um, Shinran talks about, you know, that one is already assured birth. You know, that, that, that I think is one of the most transformative expressions for me personally, you know, my, the ramification for me out of that teaching. Uh, is that if you're already assured birth in the Pure Land, everything else is small. You know? I mean, you don't have to worry about the rest of the stuff. 
Um, and so being assured of birth in the Pure Land, it's like you're already there. Um, that's, you know, you're all, your mind is already pure. You all are already a Buddha. Um, and that this way of, of talking that runs through Dogen's, Shinran's, and many of the other Kamakura thinkers uh, is, I think, the same notion uh, that we find in what in Mahamudra they're talking about, mm -hmm. the original mind as being inherently awakened and identical with the mind of the Buddha, um, bringing the path back to the very beginning, um, which sounds something like uh, some poet in the West, you know, make your way to the end of the path and know it for the first time, uh, make your way home, whatever that. Uh, so much for English poetry. Um, multiple narratives, uh, yes. Complexity of text, we see texts containing multiple possible narratives, the way in which narratives are selected consciously or unconsciously to support the self-narrative that is dominant at any particular time in either an individual or a cultural grouping also has great power. Um, that's a statement, that's not a question. Is there a question there? Uh, the question was about um, uh, the the complexity of narrative in a certain text, which is, I think, partly what you were talking about too, is this choice of narrative, and how uh, how that how that works with this idea of path. It seems to me that what you're talking about is that there's potentially multiple paths at the same time following this arc of path. Mm -hmm. So yes, that was the question. Exactly. That's I how learned I something answer. this yeah, morning. Yeah. It was a brilliant answer. Thank you. <laughs> uh, there are multiple different paths. Um, and you know, the level of ab abstraction that I'm working at allows for the fitting in of any number of different versions of this. Um, and I think that one could take specific narratives and possibly look at them as evidencing this. I mean, this, this would be a, a, an interpretive project um, rather than drawing out from the text looking at them as instances of. Uh, so if we look at, um, you know, Jarasatra's history as it unfolds, or Devadatta's identity uh, as it changes over different texts, um, you know, that can be structured in their personal processes of change uh, and seen as reflecting the kinds of growth that would be described in very direct immediate terms of one's own personal relations with others, as a, opposed to this very abstract kind of level that I'm uh, suggesting provides more of an overall uh, organizing principle uh, that in fact allows for multiple narratives. Um, and I think that, you know, the question of theological reflection and how it's um, inherited from a, an existing practice, uh, this is one of the, the problems of attempting to adapt um, all of the theological models. I mean, there's a huge body of literature on chaplaincy and pastoral counseling that is all rooted in the Christian biblical narrative. Um, I mean, I became, it's, it is really stunning once you see how pervasive the biblical narrative is in our culture. It is just so, um, uh, deeply enmeshed that 
People employ it without realizing it. And when it's employed, it makes sense because of that, the depth of that. Uh, and it goes unquestioned. It is so naturalized that this is how you think about your life. Well, you know, down to and including lots of psychoanalytic theory about the, um, you know, the idyllic state of union of the embryo uh, and that that is lost and that that birth trauma is the original trauma that one has to address in order to reach, again, a state of wholeness. That is straight biblical narrative of creation, fall, and redemption. Now, some people would say that, well, obviously the biblical narrative was a, uh, an attempt to express this psychological one. That's an interpretation. I think that at a higher level, the, the threefold narrative has been imposed on um, history, psychology, the personal existence, um, and in some ways, um, social order as well. Uh, you referenced social order. That um, people look back to the founding fathers of, uh, and a few mothers of uh, the American Republic and say, you know, they understood, they had it right, and everything since then has been a process of decay. Um, so rhetorics of decay tend to follow this kind of narrative. Uh, and then what we need to do is we need to purify and reform ourselves and get back to that original pure vision. Um, that is just, you know, that's the historiography of uh, the Protestant Reformation, writing the history of Christianity. Um, it's the vision that many people have about the nature of our current national condition, uh, and it is very, very pervasive. And as I say, it is so deeply entrenched that it is invisible. Uh, and that's why it's so hard to make the adaptation to go from these established models of what theological reflection is, mm -hmm. or what pastoral counseling is, how you address these issues, uh, and make them work in a Buddhist context, because the underlying structure is so different, the underlying vision of what it means to be a human being, living a life, and progressing and changing uh, is so vastly different. Mm -hmm. So thank you very much for this questions. I hope that, uh, <laughs> that um, I made sense.